my back in. What happened? I just like I fidget with the twingles, the twiggles, the twizzles, the, the twingles. What do you call these little these little things? I don't know. Twingles, the yeah. Twingles. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is December 10th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Neil is out again this week, so we are again joined in the studio by 538 WD editor Chad Matlin. Hi, Sarah. Glad to be with you. Glad that Neil was called into jury duty so I could do a double I know. Dip. Or were we not supposed to say where Neil is? You didn't say it in your intro, so I worried... It was like a witness protection duty or something. <laughs> it is, yeah. He's um, if this is like a grand jury or something. Now we've let the cat out of the bag. Actually, you're here for our new soap opera podcast, right? That we're going to that we decided we're going to do after last week. Takes week's of show. our lives. <gasps> wow! Wow! Ugh, what a good name. And on the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Chad. Chad, I'm, I'm I feel so lucky. Twice in in a month. It's an honor. <laughs> so, Jeff, you won your first round fantasy football playoff matchup. Hey, congrats, Jeff. I know. It was big. And Neil Neil did, too. You, you're on a collision course. I was so excited. I mean, I found out this morning when I checked, but it made my weekend. <laughs> when it you checked my, or when I told you? retroactively made my weekend. I, I don't know what to say. I'm proud of my team. <laughs> Sam Darnold is my quarterback. My backups, Gardner Minshew. I really shouldn't be winning. These are bad quarterbacks, folks. Well, I'm facing off with uh, podcast producer Grace Lynch this week in some level of consolation bracket. And then the winner plays situation. Arsenal. Right? <laughs> I think that's exactly right. Yep. We, uh, we are making the Europa League final. It's very exciting. On today's show, the World Anti-Doping Agency just banned Russia from international sporting events for four years. But did they go far enough? The college football playoff bracket has been set. We'll take a look at what made this a unique year for the selection committee. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. On Monday morning, the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA, handed down a unanimous decision to ban Russia from all major international sporting events for the next four years. This includes, but is not limited to, the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, and the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. Individual athletes will still be able to compete in these events, but not under the Russian flag. Their uniforms cannot say Russia. Should they win any medals, it would be as Olympic athletes, and the Olympic anthem would play in place of Russia's national anthem. While this is the most severe punishment Russia has received as a result of ongoing doping and cheating scandals, some members of the Olympics community did not feel the punishment was severe enough. Here's Becky Scott, a Canadian gold medal cross-country skier, on why an all-out ban is necessary. Whose rights are we really prioritizing here? The rights of clean athletes worldwide, globally, who have not gone down the path of doping and cheating, or a handful of athletes that may or may not have been part of a state-sponsored system. I think it it is a severe response, but it is the only response that could possibly be meaningful in the face of this scale of corruption. To assess whether Becky's call for an all-out ban on Russian athletes is warranted, let's step back for a second and review what the Russians were accused of doing around the 2014 Olympics in Sochi. Chad, can you recap that for us? Sure. So the New York Times has done very good reporting on this. The basic gist of it was they had a state-sponsored program, and that's one of the big things here is that the the government was involved both to help athletes dope and to mask the test results the samples that were being given and swap them out for clean samples and so in Sochi there was a sort of underground testing facility with it that was specially rigged by the Russians in order to swap out dirty urine for clean urine by passing vials through a hole in the wall and then the Russian security forces or something would unscrew the cap, which were supposed to be untamperable, and then pass it back with the clean urine, which had been frozen months before in waiting for the for the Olympics, knowing this would be you know essentially a conspiracy to cheat. It was later discovered that there were microscopic etchings left on the untamperable vials um, that show that they had in fact been tampered with, um, and so that kind of state sponsored program. It was what happened in Sochi and, and led to, and has been part of the mountain of evidence that has been building of, of what the Russians have been up to. 
So, Jeff, what happened most recently that led to WADA recommending this strict punishment? Part of the resolution following that um, incident was that Russia agreed to turn over their testing results from their doping regulators in, in Moscow called Moscow Data. What a name. And then they just turned around and quickly manipulated all those results and fabricated evidence that was, you know, basically pinned the blame on the the whistleblower in this case, Rodchenkov, that shows that this was some sort of scheme by him to make money and, and sort of conjured up like phony messages that incriminated him. And, you know, that in concert with it, just completely corrupting their own data sets and their own test results. It was clear that um, <laughs> they were not complying with WADA. And also, um, th- this was they all they had to do was sort of cross check those results with some of the other test results they had on file. And it was clear that there was all sorts of funny business going on with these Moscow laboratory results. For all the effort they went to, it seems like it was fairly easy to bring down. It was pretty naive for WADA to even remotely think that Russia was just going to promptly show their honest and true results of their internal testing. And here are all the people who failed tests. And and this is what we did wrong. You know, there was no way they were going to ever comply with that without some sort of, you know, cover up or anything like that. So it, it was kind of inevitable once it reached that state. So Chad did want to go far enough. Should any Russian athletes be allowed to compete as neutral athletes? Sarah, I think that's a really difficult question to answer as an empirical journalist, because the athletes who are allowed to still partake as a formerly Russian athlete, I forget what the full term is, have shown not to have a history of doping. And so empirically, thinking about the evidence, perhaps it suggests that they should be allowed to participate. I'm not sure that bureaucracy should stop an individual's dreams or or, or dedication and and training from from being realized. And, And I get that. That said, how is this that different from Russia competing in the Olympics? These athletes are still going to be feted at home if they win. They aren't disgraced in any way within Russia. Putin still can promote Russian athletic accomplishment even without Russia's anthem playing. And on top of that, we'll get into this later, Putin can say there's a plot against him from the West to stop Russian excellence on the world stage. And so I get why this halfway solution was taken, I'm not sure it's actually that much of a solution writ large. For the athlete, it is. On a macro level, it is not to me. Well, I guess, so what is the point then of the Olympics? Is it about countries competing or is it about individual athlete dreams? Well, it's not the 1800s anymore, right? And like in the sense that the New York Times has the medal counter. That's organized by country. The the There are huge state-sponsored athletic, um, not departments, but, you know, in, initiatives in order to be excellent at the Olympics. You saw what China did in advance of the Beijing Olympics. That was a full sort of reorientation of its culture around uh, athletics, as I understand it. And so the point of the Olympics at this point is jingoism. It is a moment for countries to rally the flag and, on top of that, to display their excellence relative to geopolitical rivals. So the athletes may be caught up in all of that. But it is – you can't ignore one for the other just because of, of principles about personal agency. All you have to do is go back and watch. It's on YouTube. Russia or athletes from Russia, whatever they were called, winning the gold medal in Pyeongchang over Germany in, in ice hockey. And watch, watch, watch what they do when they raise this Olympic flag. All those guys basically loudly singing and proudly singing the Russian national anthem. It, if anything, not having the Russian flag go up, like galvanize them, and they, you know, it, just as you're describing, they're 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 singing twice as hard, and it showed more patriotism in spite of that their flag not being there. I mean, the only real difference was that Putin himself wasn't there, and that that is somehow the punishment. Because, but then of course, you know, they get home and he has a huge thing celebrating them. And we know Putin's like obsessed with the ice hockey team. And that's, that's the big win he wanted anyway. In, in essence, no, it, it really won't change anything except you just won't see the Russian flag. When the U.S. boycotted the Olympics in the, in the eighties, I think it was 1980 in Moscow, it's not like they were worried about personal agency and individual athletes went to my knowledge, right? It was like a full on boycott. Mm-hmm. That, is the way to send a message. But that was about inter-country 
messaging. This is about, theoretically, this is about keeping drugs out of sport. What a good segue. Because to me, this is not about just that. It's about what we do with evidence and wrongdoing on the global stage. And it, it very much ties into what hap- what Russia did in the 2016 election vis-a-vis interfering with U.S. elections. And you see, to me, a parallel here, which is that the evident, the fact pattern is agreed upon by some body of experts. In the election case, it's the intelligence community of the U.S. In uh, the sports case, it's, it's WADA. Russia pushes back against the fact pattern and employs a denialism that it that it can use for its own uh, personal or, or you know con- uh, own gains within within the country in this case Putin's personal gain so is there a difference I guess is one of my questions for you guys so you have the sa- the similar catalyst to, to, to both of these incidents in the US you have President Trump who has gone against the intelligence community at times um, vis-a-vis what the fact pattern shows. We don't necessarily have that figure in the in in the sports version of this. But what's interesting to me is in both instances, whatever sanctions were applied to Russia aren't actually that stringent. They don't actually change behavior as I as I can see it. And and that's that's an interesting parallel as well to me. Do you think in either case there is something that would have changed behavior? I mean, I, I guess I feel like there isn't much that was going to change their, the Russian behavior when it comes to steroid use on the international sports stage. Like they'll just probably just try to figure out a, a better way to do it, a, a way to make it you know, more secretive, which is happening all over. It, not, sure. They're not the only ones who are doing that, obviously. I think actually a full ban is pretty severe and you would have all sorts of um, sort of side consequences where you have, you know, you know, because the IOC is kind of, you can kind of fudge the rules a little bit about what country you play for. You could have Russian athletes all of a sudden, you know, playing for Ukraine or Belarus based on their family. And this is all things that Putin doesn't want to see. Um, and I think the problem with that is that even though that is a severe punishment, you are punishing a lot of people who had nothing to do with this. And, you know, with the way the Olympics work, sometimes you only get one shot at this, you know, just based on your sport, you know. And there's a whole generation of of athletes that were primed to go to the 1980 Olympics and, you know, never got to compete. You also have, like, legendary U.S. athletes – you know, like Edwin Moses would have won a gold medal in that in the hurdles. Instead, he won in 76 and 84. But, you know, that that tarnished, you know, his resume. And likewise, there was a whole generation of Russian athletes that were would have done great in 84 and were robbed of all that glory and all that hard work was for naught. So that is severe, especially considering how big these teams are. But I think you're right that the punishment is not fitting the crime here. And in this case, I think the punishment of a full ban, you know, Full stop might actually might actually have the intended impact of making them change their behavior. I would also argue that in '84, without the Russian athletes, I've always felt like the U.S. medal count was like obviously way overblown. Yeah, and so I don't really like that. Doesn't mean as much to me because they weren't. I mean, what we want is honest competition, and we want that both in sports and in elections, right? And so we want really good Russian athletes to go against our really good American athletes and see who does better. I care who wins as a (laughs) jingoistic American, but I don't really care who wins. I want the best. I want sport to be advanced. In elections, we want no one to meddle in it either. We want the the meddling that is, uh, um, you know, steroids in in sports and I don't know misinformation campaigns in elections to not be there to find out what what who really is the best or or whatever. The interesting thing with the uh, connection to politics is that you often hear in politics, you know, that the Putin playbook and this is the Putin playbook on full display because look at what they did, especially in this cover up. They deny, they deny, they deny at all costs. They never admit wrongdoing. And what do they do with this um, Rudchenkov? They attack the accuser. That's immediately what they went after. The person, the, literally the whistleblower. So it, it's the exact same playbook that we see in politics currently, in our politics. It is the case that you can disagree that the evidence is meaningfully wrong, quote unquote, that it, that it, that it violates some ethical norm. 
that is very much anyone's you know right. What we are here as journalists, and I would argue what democratic institutions are set up to do is create a shared fact pattern across the population, quote unquote. And you know, in the U.S., that would be on the elections, and in this, in this, uh, in Wada's case, it's the all the athletes and all the country's um, athletic programs. What this debate and conversation is really about is what happens when the perpetrator denies the fact pattern what should should there be extra steps taken you know on top of whatever the the initial sanction was i don't think that's up for us to to decide but it is the case that we are increasingly as a global society encountering what somebody I, I read was epistemological nihilism, which I really love that term. So I just wanted to get in here, which is this idea that it doesn't matter whether we know anything because it's impossible to know anything. And that's not the case of what's unfolding here. I personally worry that in Wada's case, by allowing the ruling to be used as a political prop, it doesn't accomplish the the, the sanctions intended effect in the first place. But would would it have been different had they banned every Russian athlete? I mean, it still would have been used as a political Absolutely. prop. Yeah. And there's a risk of jingoism in which you overpunish yeah. the enemy, quote unquote, right. and you end up tarring a citizen of a country just because their political leader does something. And I mean, I think everyone agrees that that's not really uh, productive either. There are no easy answers here, for me at least, in the sense that I do think that it's worth raising the parallel and noting that this is another instance in which you have, to, to Jeff's point, sort of a fact pattern, a denial, and then a, a, a muddled response that doesn't help sort out what's true and what's not. Um, and, and that, that as a journalist makes me, makes me, my, my, my skin tingle a little bit. Some of these sanctions are just r- ridiculous. Like one of them is that they can't bid on any uh, future World Cups or Olympics. Well, they just hosted the Winter Olympics and the World Cup. So that's just essentially irrelevant. They can still go to the World Cup um, in Qatar, but. And I think the Euros. And they can go to the Euros as Russia because UEFA is not even a part of. Um, you know, the the same governing body. It's because it's a continental competition as opposed to a global competition, which made my brain jump out of my skull. It really comes down to it. The biggest, the biggest sanction is that Putin himself can't go because like Russian officials are not allowed on the premises or something like that. So if they were to win a World Cup, which they're not going to win because they're not good enough, he wouldn't be there to see them not lift the flag or whatever <laughs> you know i mean it's 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 a little bit they're pretty thin at the end of the day i mean nothing is really changing to the next olympics or the world cup for that matter i i just i feel like there's no there are no perfect i mean again i just don't think there's any way to change that behavior with these kinds of sanctions i think they have to happen there has to be consequences but th- i don't know that there's any because it's going to be used no matter what the the sanctions were, it was going to be painted as an unfair attack on Russia, more anti-Russia conspiracy from the West. And so that helps Putin. If they didn't do anything, then they can just keep doing their doping and that helps Putin. So there's no – I don't feel like there's any good way to do this. To that point, and this is a real take, isn't the body that failed here, WADA, the same body that is giving the punishment – they didn't stop it from happening in the first place, right? And so if you don't stop it from happening in the first place, if they had just figured out a way to actually stop the doping before it happened, the state-sponsored doping. I think that's really tough because cheating is always going to be a lure to to athletes, to organizations, to countries. And there's always the next thing. It's an arms race in kind cheating. of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So to get ahead of that, like you have to know what the like – I mean, I'm sure have they know the latest. Have some spies on the inside. Well, Pay yeah. some people off. Maybe. Let's play a little dirty. It's clear that the, the national sports bodies are playing dirty. Maybe they do. Who knows? Maybe they're better at Maybe being spies than the, than, Russians, than the Russians Doping are. spy. <laughs> Part of the reason this took place in the first place was because it was in Sochi. I mean, it was it was on their right. home turf. The IOC and they is were to under, blame, too. Yeah, they were under tremendous pressure to perform well because they spent all that money building those – 
stadiums that are now like abandoned and decrepit um, since that games. And, and they had to do well. And it was sort of under the, the same pressure that, as you mentioned earlier, that China was under when when uh, Beijing hosted the games. Um, one band that would make sense is never let them host it again. How about that? I mean, like England is basically never allowed to host a World Cup again because of the, you know, hooliganism. I mean, maybe that's changing. <laughs> Guys, I've got I've got the solution. The Olympics always held in the same place. Summer Olympics can always be in Athens. The Winter Olympics can always be in, I don't know, Norway. Somewhere that <laughs> well, Norway doesn't even want to. Don't get me started on this because the Winter Olympics, in particular, are broken. This is an they, old Jeff no Hobby horse. Wants to host it. Like, I've heard Jeff say this speech that I'm it. talking over um, at least no, 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 five just, times since I've known him. It hasn't <laughs> been that long, listeners. Oh God! So I'm just a boring, broken record about the Winter Olympics bidding process. I don't know if our good listeners have heard it, Putting Chad. Putting it in the same place all the time would take away that nonsense. You mean there is corruption going on with bidding processes as well. So let's like Cutter get rid disagrees. of all that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Those air, outdoor air conditioners, they were always going to be built. Come oof, on. Oof. Well, there's a lot still here that we, I mean, going into the next election, we'll undoubtedly see more of this too. And this is obviously not the last we've We've heard from Russia about this ban. They still have time to appeal it. So there will still be some back and forth about what actually ends up happening with both their whole team and their individual athletes. We will stay tuned. Let's pause for a word from this week's sponsor, Roman. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. It may feel easier to just brush it off or make excuses. But with Roman, it's easy to talk about it with a real doctor who can prescribe real medication. Roman is simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The doctor will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash takedown and complete a free online visit. That's GetRoman.com slash takedown to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Again, that's GetRoman.com slash takedown. On Sunday, after the College Football Conference Championship Games, the selection committee announced the four teams chosen to face off in the college football playoff, LSU, Ohio State, Clemson, and Oklahoma. This may have ended up as the easiest announcement the selection committee has made yet. LSU, Ohio State, and Clemson all finished the season as the undefeated champions in their conferences. The fourth spot, which had been contentious in the weeks leading up to the conference finals, also ended up being pretty obvious when Oklahoma beat Baylor to win the Big 12 title. Oklahoma was the only one-loss Power 5 team. So is this proof that the system works? <laughs> a system that just a few weeks ago we were pretty critical of. Today we're going to take down one of our own hot takes. Here we are a few weeks back discussing the need for the college football playoff to expand. Well, this is the problem, right? The playoff committee would love if there were four undefeated conference champions and they just make the playoff and it's all clean and they can, you know, wipe their hands of it and it's no problem. But that never happens, and it's never going to happen, and there will always be this glut of one-loss teams, and, and, and what they do with them is, is this huge problem. I mean, I think everyone admits that an 18 playoff would be much better. So given how the season wrapped up, were we wrong to suggest that the college football playoff should expand to include eight teams? I say in the take that having four neatly defined teams is never going to happen. Though these teams weren't all undefeated, things seem to have worked out perfectly for the committee. Jeff, if we want to think about this year perhaps being the exception to the rule, what does that say about college football right now? First of all, I stand by the opinion that it needs to expand to eight teams, regardless of this particularly fortunate outcome for the college football playoff. I mean, look, it's very top-heavy, but this could have very easily been a lot worse. Like, if Utah wins um, on Friday night in the Pac-12 championship, and then you have Oklahoma, or uh, you still have the same debate. They had one result went their favor, and it really lined everything in place. If Wisconsin beats Ohio State, it gets more complicated. So, basically, everything broke the college football playoffs way in terms of making this a non-controversial playoff. As I've been thinking about this, Jeff, I've come up with a, an analogy that I think works only halfway, but you know, it's better than no way. 
which is you know the NBA draft in 2019 had three good players, quote unquote. It had Zion, John Morant, and R.J. Barrett, but they still had the rest of the draft. Just because there are only three good teams, or there isn't a, a, a deep well of, of good teams where there's controversy and debate about who the best are, doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a bigger playoff just because it, it happened this one year. Right. And, and also, if we go to the, the 18 playoff fantasy, it still makes college football better because the way that would work is that all five uh, champions of the five power conferences would get in. You have a couple of wild cards and you'd have one group of five team. Uh, which would be, I guess, Memphis in this case. But still, it's going to make this weekend that just passed so much more exciting when each one of these games is essentially for a bid in the college football playoff. I mean, that's great. We won't have to have this thing like, oh, all of a sudden this game's more important because Utah lost. It would They would automatically all be um, playing games for the for the playoff, and that would be great. Um, and there. It actually, I don't think, would even be that controversial because I think the the wild cards is where you have debate, but they'd be pretty clear. I mean, it would be teams like Alabama and such that didn't even make um, their conference championship but are clearly good, and that's more has to do with the divisions and stuff. There's no doubt it would be more fun. But to answer your question, yes, the sport is incredibly top-heavy and will remain top heavy all you have to do is like look at the recruiting rankings for next year or the year after and it's the same couple schools clemson georgia alabama that are getting all these like five-star recruits and they're just the good programs are going to stay good that being said things can change like a couple years ago clemson was not considered this level um dabo has done incredible things there and then it, it sort of feeds upon itself if there were an 18 playoff i'd be fascinated to see if alabama actually made it i mean georgia has a decent claim they had a very good year you know oregon right now if there were an 18 playoff and all power five conference champions made it in oregon would have made it in oregon has kind of a claim now they lost to a very good auburn team um, i mean they had a bad loss in the conference but you know, a two-loss team, it's like, oh, two losses and that's it and your season's over. And that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I, I mean the whole way conference college football is set up is sort of ridiculous anyway. So I guess one of the questions in this debate is, does it matter what the outcome of that playoff would be in structuring the playoff itself, right? So there are three great teams, it seems like, in college football this year. Um, and according to the talk radio I was listening to on, on Saturday night, uh, Clemson might not even be one of the three great right. teams. And so, you know, let's say LSU is very likely to, to, to run away with it. And, and I think on our college football playoff predictions, they have a 29% chance of winning the title and a 67% chance of, of making the title game. And so, does that mean though that the that the playoff shouldn't be expanded? Like we're not just building post seasons to have surprises happen, right? We're building them to watch to watch the the quarterfinal games or whatever they would be and get more thrill and more narrative. As I was talking last week, and you know the NCAA tournament is sixty four teams, at least half of them have no chance of of winning the tournament, but. No one's trying to change that. And so to me, the question about college football is always really about the athletes and the money more than it is about would it create more fun? Because I think any anytime you get good teams playing more, it's more fun. And it, it's not just, you know, the end of the season that it would affect. There would be a, a trickle-down effect, I think, for sure. Because if you – as a fan of a team, Michigan, that always has sort of fake and false – optimism around their national championship ambition you're in michigan yeah yeah yeah, that's where it went um we play alabama that'll be fun another national television massacre to for the world to laugh at um in in some bowl but your basketball team Uh, basketball team's great they're great Yeah, Yeah. yeah basketball school you know it's 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 really disheartening you lose that first game you're like okay this is bad we still have a shot you lose the second game your season's basically over and then every game after that is not that much fun to watch because this dream has been dashed because you know that will not allow you to make it to the Big Ten Championship or whatever your conference championship is, and you'll never make the playoffs. So there, it, it does give hope, which makes all the regular season, there's a trickle-down effect, all the regular season more exciting for a lot of these schools. And especially for a team like Memphis, imagine all those all those group of five teams. I mean, that's that's a ton of schools. They'll each at least have one chance at at 
pulling some crazy miracle season. And that enough giving that seed of the dream, I think, is is will be fun for there'll be a lot of fun as 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 consequence because of that decision but i don't know why we're talking about it because it's never going to happen it's a complete fantasy for expanding the playoff well, but is the never playoff gonna was never going to happen at one point too yeah i think it will i mean i think the problem with a, a situation like this year's is that it doesn't give that it doesn't give the committee any reason to change right. it's we need the years of chaos and that's why i'm always rooting for the most chaos possible because I think if there's a big enough outcry, that's what will push things along. When there are, you know, if if an, a one-loss Alabama doesn't make it, that's where we'll see people, them at least, you know, raise a fuss. And that's where things might actually change. Can I, can I ask you guys a question, which is our model still has Ohio State as the favorite or has, yeah, as a favorite to win the national championship. The narrative around their come from behind victory against Wisconsin seemed to suggest that there might be a flaw in Ohio State's team and it was laid bare by by Wisconsin. What do you make of that discrepancy between the pundits and the model? Right. I just don't really agree with that. I mean, I think LSU has proven itself to be a clearly more formidable team. Just look at who they've beaten. They've beaten, you know, Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Georgia, all these teams, whereas Ohio State really just beat Wisconsin twice and Michigan, I guess. And some Michigan. Yeah, but yeah. even that, I mean. And Michigan's a basketball school. I mean, right. as we all know, so Michigan's a basketball school. I mean, we dabble in football occasionally. Ohio State still is first in the um, ESPN's football power index. In fact, LSU is third in that. Clemson is actually above LSU. I mean, there, there are so many different ways to measure these teams that have not played each other, which is why a bigger playoff makes more sense because we don't know how to evaluate the Big Ten versus the SEC. We don't, we have a couple of games, some transitive properties that can tell us some things, but we don't have enough information. So we're, we're putting these teams through these metrics to try to figure out who's best. But don't you want more of them to play each other? That, that point you just made about transitive property yeah. made me think there's a good piece for, for 538 to do, showing the difference between college basketball and how many transitive links you can make and college football and just how insular and isolated. And you could visualize that really nicely, right. like of, of just like how um, how siloed these different conferences are compared to in, in college basketball. Right. There's just so many more data points in college basketball than there are in college football. And so you end up trading on the traditions of schools much more than the actual results of games, which, you know, we've talked about this off and on about how preseason rankings do actually are actually pretty predictive. But I think there's a feedback loop there because these are still decisions made by people instead of by playing each other. Um, so it's just really hard to tell. So, right. And those are decisions made by people, too. It's just not people in a boardroom. It's the actual people who play the game. Right, right, right. And that's better. If the goal is to find the best team in college football, and I'm not convinced that that is currently the goal. I think that that's not the goal. Then what's the goal, I wonder? The well, goal is to make money, yeah, guys. Exactly. That is always the answer. The goal is to get people riled up and to, you know, get people out to the games and increase eyeballs well, on yeah. the televised broadcast. I mean, I don't know that the goal is to say for sure. Because if it is, wouldn't Georgia be in the playoff? Georgia pro- is probably better than Oklahoma. Georgia might be better than Clemson. Georgia lost to South Carolina. You can't lose to South Carolina and then expect to make the playoff. I mean, that it's, it's on them. I mean, in overtime, though. And so... But Jeff, it's a bad loss that could have gone either way. But that's my point. If it was a if win, is you, it still a bad win? If you root for an elite college football team, you can't lose games. Like you can maybe lose okay. one, but then you have to win them all. But you want to let them lose games. That would sap all of the urgency and energy out of this, Jeff, by saying the two lost teams are allowed in. Clemson had a bad win over North Carolina. They should have lost that game. They nearly did. It should have gone to overtime, but North Carolina went for two and didn't make it and lost by one point. So can you tell me there's that much of a difference between Clemson and Georgia because Georgia lost the game and Clemson won it? I understand we have to go by wins and losses, but that's what I mean by it's not really about finding the best team. Okay. Yes, they did win by one point over North Carolina. You look at what they did afterwards. Look at just look at the lines. Look at the betting lines favored by 20 favored by 26 over Florida State covered flavored by 
Favored by 25 against Louisville, covered. Favored by 35 against Boston College, covered. Favored by 35 against North Carolina State, covered. 35 against Wake Forest, covered. I mean, they're absolutely destroying teams. I mean, these are like... The ACC is also Fine, but they still... You know how hard it is to cover a 35-point spread, and they're doing it every week? (laughs) I do. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, like, there's an... It would not shock me at all if Clemson just wins the national championship and it makes it look easy. I mean, we don't... <laughs> Doesn't that say more about how good Vegas is at setting lines than it does about <laughs> well, not, how good Clemson Actually, is? not really, because they keep covering. They can't. They literally can't set these lines high enough. I mean, they were giving 29 points in the ACC championship, and it was, it was not even in question. 62 to 17. What, are they going to make the spread 50? I mean, like, maybe they should. I mean, it's ridiculous. How many sports do you think the playoffs actually are about the best team finding the best team is it just the nba it's not baseball too random you would have way more games if you really cared about baseball best team hockey same thing with the puck bouncing i think it's pretty close in the nfl yeah i was gonna say the nfl okay which is interesting because it's just a you would think it would be more random because it's just a one and done you know one game playoff but it does seem like the buys make a big difference i think because the best yeah, exactly. The best, the teams that have been best over the regular season are rewarded. I mean, not that crazy things can, can't still happen, but the NBA is probably the closest to actually doing it every time. And having the Super Bowl on a neutral field is kind of the great equalizer, too, with that. Yeah, you'd have to do a home and home otherwise. Yeah. Like soccer does. One sport where the best team usually doesn't win is college basketball, I think, where that. Well, maybe not. I mean, it's debatable, but that is certainly a sport where you see very good teams eliminated way too early, and everyone loves college basketballs. Yeah, in college basketball, the purpose is the excitement, not necessarily rewarding the best team. Okay, well, in college football, so we we know the four teams. Who do you guys like to win the national championship? Let me tell you how much college football I've watched this season. I saw five minutes of the LSU-Georgia game on Saturday <laughs> on an iPhone from across the room. Wow. Wait, someone else's iPhone? Yeah. someone else, LSU looked really impressive, let me tell you. You couldn't believe how they were just steamrolling all those little ants they were playing against. They looked like so ants, too. So you like too, LSU? Yeah. yeah, LSU, totally. Their quarterback, uh, Jacob something, right? Uh, Burrow. <laughs> Joe, Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow. <laughs> Jacob something. We go way back. <laughs> yeah, clearly. <laughs> so you like LSU. Who do you like, John? I actually am going to be pretty boring here and say I think it's LSU over Clemson. You just gave us this whole run I, uh, on look, how Clemson covered the spread. The degenerate gambler, Jeff, my favorite Jeff, was here. I think it's going to be a great game, and I think Clemson's going to win easily over Ohio State. Really? Yeah. Wow. I think, that, I think it's going to be not close. So that maybe that's my bold prediction because I, ha- I can't you know be chalky neil and, and well actually since chalky neil's not here i i can be i can fill that role i want to bet against conventional wisdom and against our model but i really like lsu i mean i just they just look so good and i've i have liked them all season that is betting against our model so that's, you you still get to come out ahead that's true but yeah okay you get to prove well it's not nate it's just the model wrong but let's just say Nate wrong, which is is a great delight. But it's a little, yeah, that's true. But it is a little bit boring betting, um, picking LSU, given that everyone is picking LSU. Everyone but in Jacob, this room and Jacob Burrow. No, that is not his name. <laughs> Joe, so Johnny, his name Johnny is Joe. Burrow. Johnny Burrow. <laughs> All right. Well, Jacob Burrow and LSU is our is our pick. So Look, we'll see. How Jimmy that Burrow goes. is going to be an NFL quarterback and a star for the Bengals. <laughs> I can't wait to see him in those Bengals stripes. I think we can leave that there. Thanks, guys. It was great. (laughs) Let's pause for a word from this week's other sponsor, Whoop. We're all looking for ways to improve our health, whether it's being smarter about how we train, making a better effort to get more sleep, or simply thinking more about our body's overall wellness. We've already discussed that I personally need more sleep. You guys both have young kids. I assume that's a problem for you too, right? It's not just me who's not getting enough sleep. I'm fine. My daughter sleeps so well. That's, this is my victory. That is obnoxious. I can't, I can't say more because Tony will kill me. Well, do your kids sleep pretty well, Jeff? Your kids are a little older. I've just kind of given up on sleep as a concept. <laughs> it's not, not in the cards. Well, do we have a product for you? <laughs> Today's sponsor, Whoop, is a fitness tracker that goes beyond counting steps and provides 24-7 fitness, sleep, and recovery insights personalized to you. Whoop. 
With Whoop, you'll get a daily recovery score that looks at biometrics like heart rate variability, your resting heart rate, and your sleep performance to let you know how ready your body is to perform. You're also given insight into the intensity of your training in real time, and you can track how strenuous your day has been. You can get next-level sleep insight with suggested sleep times based on what kind of day you had, track your sleep stages and cycles, and see how much sleep you got compared to with how much you needed. Whether you're looking to be smarter about your fitness, better about your sleep, or more mindful of your body's recovery, WHOOP has you covered. You don't need to wait for a New Year's resolution to start being smarter about how you train, sleep, and recover. Go to WHOOP.com and use the code TAKEDOWN to get 15% off. Go to WHOOP.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code TAKEDOWN at checkout. Optimize your performance with WHOOP. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Today, we're so excited to be joined by one of our fabulous copy editors, Maya Sweetler. Start us off, Maya. Okay. So the Week 11 matchup between the Pittsburgh Steelers and Cleveland Browns about a month ago was pretty memorable, not because of an exciting ending or its massive playoff implications or anything, but for the massive brawl that broke out on the field. Um, at one point, Cleveland defensive end Miles Garrett pulled off the helmet of Steelers quarterback Mason Rudolph and hit Rudolph in the head with it. The fight resulted in three ejections, and the league suspended Garrett indefinitely. But there have been knockdown dragout fights in AFC North games before. There was the Steelers-Ravens AFC Championship game after the 2009 season, when Pittsburgh's Ryan Clark knocked out Baltimore's Willis McGahee. There was the wildcard game in 2016 between the Steelers and the Bengals, in which there were eight personal fouls and more than $80,000 worth of fines. And that's just the playoffs. These teams play each other six times a year. It feels like every year there's some ugly incident in the AFC North, so I started thinking about penalties in interdivisional games. Do certain divisions like the AFC North see teams flagged more frequently? It it sure seems like the AFC North is, like, constant, right? I mean, even even in that game, the Cleveland-Pittsburgh game, they were saying, like, oh, yeah, these teams don't like each other. That's, like, the thing, right? None of these teams like each other. I wonder – well, this is maybe an aside, but I would argue there's maybe, like, some weird cultural – assumptions about like industrial midwest kind of stuff going on but we can can (laughs) (laughs) well so i looked into this using data provided by espn stats and info and looked at penalties in divisional games between 2002 uh, the first season that featured 32 nfl teams across eight divisions and 2018 um, because teams haven't played the same number of games against divisional rivals this year couldn't include 2019 Um, But I found that, actually, if you look at total penalties, teams in the NFC West and the AFC West draw the most flags when playing against each other. So This is why our cultural assumptions and stereotypes about the white working class are outdated, guys. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Seattle, very dangerous. (laughs) Both divisions averaged upwards of 190 penalties in divisional games per season. And this holds true across both total penalties and accepted penalties. But for the purposes of this little rabbit hole, I stuck with total penalties. Um, The next year is the AFC North, NFC East, and NFC North, all in the low 180s. The NFC South and AFC South are in the mid-170s, while the AFC East surprisingly averages the fewest number of interdivisional penalties per year with just over 170. It's those wasps. It's the Yanks. (laughs) Or it's the Patriots. And they're so well coached. And nobody tries that hard against them. No, that doesn't seem right. Wouldn't you want to get them off their game by fouling them a lot? Maybe they know that maybe the Patriots opponents know that if you're going to play dirty, you're going to get called immediately, which has been true. Because of bias from the refs. Exactly. The refs protecting Tom Brady. I think it's that you have the the three teams that are just dischanted and don't care. What's the point? Listen, Bills, we're the Jets. We don't. We used to hate you, but now it doesn't matter anymore. This is spoken from Patriots. deep inside of a Jets depression that Jets <laughs> has been in four years. I was going to suggest the discipline of Rex Ryan coach teams, but <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> for maybe sure, not. maybe not. The next question is: Does this trend hold when you break down penalties called against offense, defense, and special teams? The answer is kind of, but there were a few things that stood out. Um, The AFC North averages 38 special teams penalties per year, which is on average three more penalties than the next highest divisions. But the AFC North also averages the fewest number of defensive penalties, just 61.6 per season. 
By comparison, the AFC West, which averages the greatest number of defensive penalties, gets flagged 70 times per season, which I thought was surprising considering James Harrison played linebacker on the Steelers for nine of the 17 seasons that I looked at. <laughs> and that's The special teams thing is like, that's really interesting too. Why they're just like blindsiding guys running down the field or what is yeah, that? <laughs> just horse collars everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if you guys remember this, but I think it was the 2016 game. There was a coach who was like punching. <laughs> that's right. Like one of the Bengals players on the field. So that's <laughs> one of them. They're, all, they're in it, man. They're in it. Right. It's a whole team effort. It's not just yeah. special teams. It's everyone. <laughs> but this doesn't actually tell us much, right? We need to normalize this across trends in penalties. What if there are teams that are highly penalized in general, not just in their six divisional games, skewing the averages? Um, so I ran some regressions, and when I did, I saw that, yeah, in general, there's a pretty strong correlation between the number of penalties teams draw when they play divisional rivals versus when they play teams outside the division. The AFC West, for example, contains more heavily penalized teams. So the trend I saw in intradivisional penalties is borne out through the team's other 10 games. Um, and the AFC East, which has the fewest number of intradivisional penalties, is also generally less penalized across a 16-game season. So the Patriots just, they're not penalized either, which is not a surprise to anyone who ever watches New England games, right? It seems like you've got a bit of a, an axe to grind here, Sarah. This is, yeah, wow. I know seriously. my team's not even in there. I'm a Jet fan. I mean, shouldn't I be, shouldn't I Please be the do. one complaining here? I've given up. I've you given know, up. I don't left. care. But when I compared the correlation coefficients of specific divisions against the league average, five of the eight divisions saw their intradivisional penalties trend with the league-wide standards. Um, two divisions had pretty small differences, the AFC North because there are slightly more penalties in intradivisional games, and the NFC South because there are slightly fewer, but we're talking about tenths of flags here. Um, but this is where it gets interesting. The last division, the one whose intradivisional penalties trend diverged the most from its season-long trends, is the NFC West. And so just so I understand, that means the NFC West, when playing against, when teams within the NFC West are playing against other teams within the NFC West, they really do commit more fouls than you would expect given their overall trends. Exactly. Okay. In the six games where they play each other, they receive 1.2 more flags than they do in the other 10 games that they have. Um, and so when I went back and looked at when we started to see this divergence, it basically started this decade. It was around the time Pete Carroll was hired in Seattle, the Legion of Boom really took off, and the Niners, Cardinals, and Rams all went through periods in which they were pretty good. Um, in the eight years where this trend is most prominent, each of those three teams won the division at least once. That's more than can be said for the AFC West, where the Chiefs and Broncos have dominated the division since the turn of the decade, or the least penalized AFC East, where the Patriots have won the division all but two years in the 17-season sample. Did you know that, Jeff? <laughs> nice. So this suggests then that – does this suggest to you that the NFC West is like truly the most fierce division? Or like that's where the most fierce competition is happening? Or they hate each other. Or they hate each the other most. the most. Yeah. It's kind of intuitive, right? Teams in competitive divisions are flagged more. It's impossible to know if this is because teams play their divisional rivals, rivals tougher or if refs are more sensitive in competitive games or players bend the rules in trying to take competitive advantages in games with playoff implications. Um, ESPN Stats and Info doesn't really contextualize the penalties. Um, but based on this, we should expect these types of matchups to remain chippy, particularly in divisions with a lot of parity. So maybe as Brady and the Patriots dynasty fades, we'll begin to see more contentious games in the AFC East. We'll know the Jets are contenders when they start fouling more against their divisional rivals. Exactly. I, I think that that's exactly. A, I like that. I like that as a as a canary in the coal mine to look forward <laughs> to that division actually becoming competitive. The thing that kind of surprised me is do you remember when the NFL changed its schedule to try and de-incentivize people basically resting players at the end of the season so they stacked all the divisional matchups at the end of the season that was pretty recent but you don't really see the trend start to shift then it's it's kind of born throughout the entire two decade sample that that i looked at that's so it's so that's wild to me i i feel like it makes sense that you would get up for your divisional games more and that would be you know you'd be overly aggressive or whatever and get well, but that it is more borne out within the NFC West is fascinating because I would have, I mean, I would have expected in the AFC West, I would have expected it in the the, the division that my team plays in, yeah, because I know how much I personally hate the other teams in my division. I assume the players all do too, but that 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 it's more in the NFC West. We just don't think about that. I mean, the Legion of Boom was, you know obviously aggressive but there was a, I mean, there's been stuff written about the Pete Carroll Seahawks teams. Uh, particularly those Legion of Boom teams, that they were very aggressive yeah. to the point where 
Um, and I think there was a great article, you know, when they went to the Super Bowl that um, I've worked on at the Journal, where it it talked essentially about how their strategy was to commit pass interference <laughs> on every play, and essentially what they were trying to do was challenge the refs like we dare you to throw a flag for pass interference on every play because if you think about it the refs are under a lot of pressure they're not you know they see one pass interference they they really are going to be less likely to throw it on the very next play so that was kind of a strategy and it, this actually checks out that it, the number of penalties does not correlate if anything it's like a reverse correlation with the quality of the team i mean it's it's not necessarily like an indicator of a bad team if anything it's a indicator of a good team um and with the afc west the raiders are just infamously i mean it's part of their like team culture that we have to commit a lot of penalties so i'm not terribly surprised that that division's up there in in the rankings either maya do you think that nfc west teams other than the seahawks then reacted to that with the seahawks and like you know reacted in kind essentially yeah, I think that's very possible. Like the Niners have secretly had these incredibly hard-nosed defensive teams going back to the early, you know, 2010s, the Harbaugh era teams were awful. I remember that 2013 NFC Championship game right before the Harbaugh Bowl where it was just brutal. Like you knew those guys were not going to be able to get out of bed the next morning. Yeah. They were these incredibly tough, tough, tough games. Um, and as the Rams and Cardinals kind of come up and, and fall down, they're, they're playing up to, to the teams in their division. They're not necessarily playing down. The other thing is I just think there's been more consistency in the NFC West relative to a couple of these other divisions. I think only like the NFC South and maybe the NFC North rival it. Like you have the same coaches or same coaching style. You have like what, six quarterbacks, seven quarterbacks who've played in the NFC West in the last Eight years. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to just see, just to isolate personal fouls, you know, and throw on all this sort of procedural ones like false start and you know stuff that's not really hostile. Because I bet I would be surprised if the AFC North doesn't lead in that. Because as you said, like you know, Bengals, like it's like every rivalry is is, is pretty ugly. The problem is the rules for personal fouls have changed pretty dramatically in this in this overall sample size. Yeah, and the pass interference would really throw off the yardage too when you have these like 50-yard penalties on a long pass interference. Yeah, well, I think actually that's probably why the yardage in the NFC West completely is skewed. You have, you know, the years when like Earl Thomas and Richard Sherman were dragging guys down 50 yards out of the line and suddenly, you know, <laughs> the Rams got 47 yards of penalties on one play. Well, this data is fascinating, um, and it's so much fun to talk about it. I'll, we'll be we'll have to revisit it once the season is over and see where this season ended up. That will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcasts at five thirty eight dot com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner and guest host today is Chad Matlin. For Chad, Jeff, and Maya, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.